and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. If you're an engineer working to put machine learning into production, you should definitely subscribe to the Machine Learning Engineered newsletter. Every Thursday, I send out a short email featuring the five most interesting things that I've learned that week. Past issues have included links to articles, research papers, events, and videos, all curated specifically for the busy machine learning engineer who wants to become the best at what they do. To get that in your inbox, go to cu.ai slash newsletter. Again, cyou.ai slash newsletter. My guest today is Willem Pinar. He's the co-creator of Feast, the leading open source feature store, which he leads the development of as a tech lead at Tecton. Previously, he led the ML platform team at Gojek, a super app in Southeast Asia. Willem, welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. Hey, Charlie. Thanks for having me. First of all, I want to thank you because some of your talks that I've been watching in preparation for this interview have actually been really helpful in my own work. And uh, we'll get to all your public speaking and your subject um, we cover in a bit, but I uh, just want to thank you for that right off the bat. Cool. That's great to hear. Now, the question that I always start these podcast episodes with is how were you exposed to computer science in the first place and what made you interested in it and decide to pursue it? As an introverted child, I was just always drawn to the wide, like deep world of computers and gaming specifically, and just kind of lost, got lost in that. And it's just like a depth of things to always figure out and play around with and tinker with. So everything from operating systems to debugging games and just exploring the kind of underbelly of like old computer systems. So I've always been in and around that space. And I guess that's always been uh, a, a keen interest of mine, even if I didn't always stay on that track, went into engineering. Yeah. And so I was looking through some of your background and saw that you actually started an ISP in college. Can you tell that story? That's uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, that's a, a very weird one. Like, I, the town that I used to live in, in college, the internet was very expensive. And so students wouldn't want to set up their ADSL with a kind of state provider because it's like super expensive and it's a long contract. So we just banded together like a group of us, bought one. ADSL line and then shared it with wireless, our wireless router. 
And it's just started in my closet. But it's such a big problem in that like city that it we, we expanded building to building this little network. And before we knew it, it was like a full on business. Like we knew we could make money sell reselling internet to students. And that kind of exploded and became the thing that actually got me through university uh, because I needed to have employment to you know pay for university and i balanced that and studies which was probably the toughest time of my life but very rewarding because you're applying entrepreneurship and pr practical engineering while studying engineering and so it doesn't stay super abstract so you're like figuring out how computer networks work you know how high availability problems should be solved negotiating with like body corporates and building owners like you want to put up a tower let's say on a mountain how do you as a student worm your way into a position on a mast that is owned by an eye like a telecoms company without going through all of the regulations and stuff like you have to take a lot of little back doors there so that was a fun experience yeah and we grew it to like a pretty big company eventually sold that to one of our competitors they were 10 times as big as us but it was just like a cool little snippet of my life yeah, that's very cool, especially considering that it did get you through college. And not everyone can say that they were able to start a business that made them not have to take out loans and such. So now moving on to more relevant experience, you were at Gojek, which, as I understand it, is insane super app that came out of Southeast Asia. It is the biggest startup that uh, has had success in out of any VC-backed startup in Southeast Asia. So when did you join them and what was your experience like growing that team? Yeah, so I joined them in April of 2017. So I was previously in Thailand working as a software engineer and I just I got connected to some folks that were starting a data science team. Um, most of them were coming from TripAdvisor to Gojek uh, because they'd known the CEO of Gojek. At the time, he was a CIO. But Gojek had a lot of data because they had so many products they had 16 17 different products and they're all diverse so it's like ride hailing digital payments logistics food delivery and then a bunch of lifestyle services and so the data they had was like incredibly rich and it was like it's such a great company for a data scientist to work in because the amount of use cases you have is just endless and the ability to tie the data from different entities and and businesses like sub businesses and products together was really great i joined them in 2017 they were starting a data science team at the time and they really had a problem with getting into production so all this data they were hiring all these data scientists and for some reason that wasn't resulting in business conversion rates increasing user delight being improved all the things that they thought would just magically happen if you throw a bunch of data scientists at the problem and our team was embedded within theirs and our mandate was get it get us into production actually drive the bottom line yeah so if you want me to expand on that i can expand on that that was your question i think was when, when did i join them? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so you said that they their initial approach of just throwing a bunch of data scientists into a room and i actually think that's not an uncommon approach for a lot of these companies can you expand on more specifically why that didn't lead to the business outcomes that were desired? Yeah, 2017, it sounds like it's it's not a lifetime ago, but at the time, the companies hadn't figured this out yet. You can't, it's not like engineers where it's a, for engineers are almost like a full stack engineer is like a, a package, right? It's like this guy can do or gal can do everything start to end. 
they can deploy a database, they can get you know into the cloud and you set up the infra and get an app working and hack together a UI. But a data scientist can't work in isolation. They need people around them that can complete that life cycle of shipping something into production or somebody upstream needs to produce the tables that they depend on and the data infrastructure. And the business team needs to validate and justify the business use case. But people didn't really think about that. They thought that okay, data scientists will just figure this out and they would earn this. But it turns out a lot of these data scientists at the time were just academics. They didn't have the skill set necessarily to ship things into production. And a lot of the other ones had a strong data science and data fundamentals, but they didn't have, they hadn't gone through a complete life cycle. So they came from like boot camps or they came from other types of roles. Maybe they were analysts in previous lives. So they didn't know what it would take to go from nothing to something. And they can start with a Jupyter notebook, they can get something up and running, but they can't really get to prod. And this is such a cliche thing to say right now, but it's because everybody realizes this problem. At the time, it wasn't so obvious, and the team had a little bit of anxiety about, shouldn't we have shipped more by now? It's been three to six months. Shouldn't we have delivered a lot more? We feel like we haven't achieved a lot, but it's fundamentally a really big problem if you don't have, if you haven't done it before, and you also don't have the systems. We can deploy the systems and set everything up. But if you don't know what to set up, do you need Presto or do you need, just need Postgres or do you just need flat files? Do you need a data lake? Do you need a data warehouse? Is it safe to double down a BigQuery because you're going to get vendor lock-in? There's all these decisions that you have to make. And if they're just made for you, then it's easy to ship. But if you have to do that from scratch with very little information online, then it's hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And were there some leaps that were taken in terms of bringing people with experience in or just adding more engineers to the group that really led to there being a being more shipping being done more business value being added i think the biggest thing for us was just there was a lot of buy in from our leadership that our team would there is an understanding that the failure would happen some use cases would not pan out in the same way that we hoped and sometimes that you, we would push the matrix down and not up and there would be a lot of trial and error and so that really helped us it meant that we, could, we were liberated to not shipping on specific deadlines. Like we didn't have to ship a release like an engineering team does. They can just, the data scientists can work on longer life cycles and then ship when they reach some kind of milestone. We focused heavily on one or two big use cases. At the time it was driver allocation, like the driver matchmaking to customers and pricing. Those were the two big ones. We also looked at food delivery, worked on food recommendations and things like incentives like vouchers and so you can send vouchers to customers and say oh, there's this discount if you take a trip during these hours or you can go to a driver and say you get points extra points if you pick up customers in the city as opposed to like out in the middle of nowhere but all those things were driven by models but we just focused on the two big ones where there was matchmaking and pricing we could build MVPs for them. And then we had ex experience. We figured out this is how you do artifact tracking. This is how you do model management. These are the things that really sucked. Like we hard coded a lot of things and we didn't want to hard code them again. And uh, if you've gone through that and you've got, you're codifying your best practices, then it becomes easier. Then you can make, you know, further design decisions from that. And that's what we did. So there was no like one thing, ah, we just built the one big black box and that figured all, uh, solve all our problems. It wasn't like that. It was very pragmatic and incremental. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And as you got experience with those, maybe that one core product or the second core use case, how would you spread those best practices throughout the organization so that other teams weren't repeating your mistakes? We were very solid at the time. We didn't intentionally want to be silent, but we were not, we were ahead of a lot of the other teams in terms of the scope that we had. There were no other teams that were doing data-related 
decision systems, driving core business decisions based on data and models. So we didn't really disseminate a lot of that information because when we did speak about it to other teams, they were like, I'm busy with this Android app that I'm building, or I'm busy with this other marketing campaign. They didn't really find value in that at the start. Over time, a lot of the other teams started building these systems as well. And that's when a lot of collaboration happened. And that's when a lot of the questions were like, what is a data scientist? started coming up when it became such a kind of like hybrid role. And we did eventually, our team, at the start, we were an engineering team and we became we shipped specific solutions with data scientists. So we were like a squad. And eventually we became an infrastructure team. So we were on the side maintaining the infrastructure and tooling, and they would ship things on our infrastructure. And then that became more of a platform team where we would build APIs and services and UIs for them to interact with. And we were like focusing on time to market and they were focusing on business impact. And at that point, we were also fulfilling a role of consulting other teams. So if you were going to start a machine learning project you, and you were an engineer, maybe you'd come to us and ask us like, what are the best practices? And then we could show you our docs and show you our existing systems to so you could get an idea of what are the ways in which you could do that. So that's how it evolved. Yeah. Interesting. What would be the structure of how those teams ended up being structured? Is it just a team that is while they're building the, out the platform and it's a lot of engineers and then you have data scientists who are using the, that platform to be able to ship whatever feature that they're working on or would it be more, I don't know, more engineers inside of the project that is creating the feature or kind of how were those teams structured in terms of roles in each team? Yeah, that's very interesting. So we were very focused or that's a very good question. We were very focused on the use cases at the start. So teams were divided by use case. And so that would split the whole. So we were just one data science org, but the data science org had engineers within them and it had traditional engineers like myself, had ML engineers, had data scientists, had analysts, and it had some managers eventually. But they'd be in sub-squads according to each use case. And they would just solve those problems and independently. Over time... The org changed a lot and we, we went through multiple iterations and this is still one of those kind of open questions and like how best to group your engineers and your data scientists and your org because it isn't very obvious. So we went to a model that was, we had business verticals and business products that owned have specific use cases and those, they would have their own data scientists that would be incent, not incentivized, but they would be you know, targeting those use cases and making sure that they were successful in owning them. We'd have a central platform team like ours that that we were not really responsible for those use cases being successful, but we were responsible for enabling them. And the product teams would have their own engineers. So those engineers could work with their own data scientists to deliver something. If they didn't need any of our tools, they could do that without us completely. Like they didn't have to use our platform. They didn't have to use Feast or any of our kind of model serving APIs or anything. But in most cases, we built systems that were so well integrated into their workflows. If you want to just get data from them some source, ship it into production, deploy a model. It's just like one click. We make their lives so easy that inevitably they come to you to get help. But our team, the platform team, was never, or at beyond the first year, responsible or sitting next to data scientists, making sure that things get shipped. Because one of the problems that we had was that we had 50 plus data scientists and we only had about 15 people in the platform team. You can't, it doesn't scale. You can't address all of their needs. 
And I would have the reverse if I was to start a company and have Gojek scale. I would have 50 engineers for 10 data scientists or 15 data scientists because it's more uh, realistic in terms of the breakdown of work. There's a lot of engineering that goes into building these decision systems. And unfortunately, a lot of data scientists today get really frustrated because they need to do a lot of grunt work that isn't being picked up by anybody. And that's just in reality of incorrect hiring. When you were you were part of that platform team when it was being built and you also just mentioned that you thought a lot about how you would structure your allocate resources between platform and data scientists. What would you have those like horde of engineers that you would, many engineers that you have in your hypothetical company, what would be those first things that they would stand up as part of their tooling stack? Specifically for the platform team or for which, for the ML team. So this kind of changed over time. So we, we would have, so okay, for the underlying platform or for a use case that they're trying to address? Uh, I'm just trying to figure out what's the scope here. So it's engineers on the platform team that are standing up. Yeah. What would be some of those first tools that you would want your data scientists to have access to yeah. in order to ship something? Yeah. yeah. So we had, the scope was the whole end-to-end -end life cycle, the data science life cycle. And you can start with an idea that requires some kind of way to explore data, right? So they needed Jupyter notebooks. And that's the first thing you give them access to credentials, access to, to the data warehouse, access to our data catalogs and data lakes. And then they can just explore the data come up with an hypothesis, test it out in a notebook. And that is not even shipping into production. But once they have an idea, once they have raw data, you can give them access to the lifecycle that starts it. There's the notebook and then there's like a scheduler. We built a pipelining system that allows you to, it's built basically a, a wrapper on top of Airflow that you define some kind of schema and it gets compiled down into Airflow. Originally we ran Airflow, but it was like very hard for data scientists to maintain structure and best practices within it. And so we built a layer on top of that and worked pretty well. But they would iterate on something, then they would ship pipelines that would either train models, process data, and that would get delivered into a like a model artifact store, like a model store, or just get shipped into a BigQuery. We also exposed another team's product to them that was allows them to transform streams. So it's like, literally like a UI that you def publish a, sync, a SQL query and you can like transform data on Kafka. And so they have two ways in which they can like transform data. They have ways to schedule jobs and train models and process data. And then we also allowed them to use a, a tool called Merlin. That is a kind of abstraction we built on KF Serving as well as MLflow that allows them to, with a notebook, just you know deploy a model straight into a model store. And then from that model store, deploy straight into production and it'll create like a serverless deployment of their model. So then you've got an API endpoint with your model being stored and um, served. And you can, obviously, throughout this process, you've also retrieved your features from Feast. So you know if you have streams and you have data being published into BigQuery, you can also enable some of those features to be served with Feast in the online environment or in the training environment. And so when you're training a model, you're actually just interfacing with Feast, the feature store. And uh, if you're serving your model in production, you're also retrieving features from the feature store or the online case. And that's those are the big ones. And then you've got an endpoint that you can hit with entities like customers or drivers or whatever you, it is you're going to enrich with features and make a prediction on. And the final part of the puzzle is basically our experimentation system. So that is Turing. And with Turing, you've got basically, well, we had multiple experimentation systems, but the final one is Turing. And basically like an incoming request and then 
based on some metadata in that request, you can make a decision whether to route the incoming request to a specific model and how to log out the results of that outcome and prediction. And then a way for you to tie back what you know outcome happened to the original incoming request and do like analysis and a breakdown of which models are performing best and which ones are not, and then take actions based on that. So you could iterate and promote and you know deprecate models as things become you know, improved or more accurate or more performant, whatever it is you're optimizing on. Yeah. So I think those are the high level f- components that were involved. You know, there, there was other tooling, like we had like validation tools as well. So you could like in your CI system, run a benchmarking on your model itself that ran historical requests to that model serving container. And it would diff the outcomes of you know the predictions with the previous predictions then it will tell you like how wildly different is this model from the previous models and if the the, the difference is 80 percent, then you know that there's something wrong there's something broken but if it's like relatively close then you know that it's, it's an evolution of the previous one so yeah those are those are the high level components so merlin our model serving turing our experimentation feast our feature store and then our pipelining system was called clockwork mm-hmm. and yeah. uh for the listeners out there i was I'll put a link into the blog post from the Gojek Engineering blog because I think those are really great overviews of a lot of different parts of the stack. And I can imagine that there's a lot of ML engineers and data scientists listening right now who are very jealous of that overall setup uh, since I know a lot of companies out there don't necessarily have that large enough platform teams to be able to create all of these different Yeah, things. well, actually, they are busy open sourcing those tools. So Clockwork probably won't be open source soon, but Merlin is already open source. It's not really documented yet, but in theory, if anybody wants to deploy that, they can do so today. And I believe Turing is also open source. So it's on the Gojek GitHub repo. <laughs> There's a lot of engineering that went into that. We'll see uh, that the team is actively working. Well, I've left Gojek, of course, but the team is actively working on cleaning that up and eventually they'll have a bigger release that people can start using it. Great. And speaking of tools that have been open sourced, the, of course, the topic of the day is Feast, the most popular feature store really out there for open source, or that is open source. So can you talk a little bit about some of the issues that were faced at Gojek that led to the need for Feast? Yeah, so at the time, I think early 2018, we just realized there was a lot of duplication of work. There's just so many pipelines being copied and pasted. And as engineers, we felt frustrated because the data scientists didn't have people helping them. And they'd come to us and say, hey, I don't know what's wrong here. It's just a lot of repetitive data engineering and data plumbing. So there was a big smell there and we knew we wanted to solve some problems there. And we also, for as engineers, had like so many use cases coming to us where people are just like, I need an online store. I need to serve this in production. I need multiple online stores because I need to do lots of experiments. And so there was this like, you realize that there's a duplication problem. There's a problem with managing a lot of infrastructure as new use cases arrive. There's a problem of ensuring the consistency between the online and offline environments. So we didn't have, people would just ship data into production and, or they would just do transformations and streams that were not consistent with an offline uh, world. And uh, sometimes that was us. Sometimes that was the quickest way to get something solved. But all 80% of the time that we were syncing was in the airflow world and pipelines and data. And we knew that we wanted to solve some of those problems. How we ended up solving the problem was didn't address all of the original problems that we had. So Feast doesn't solve how you create those transformations. But to summarize, it was like the collaboration aspect, the reuse aspect, there was the online serving aspect, the infrastructure management, and then there was the consistency between online and offline 
I'd say those were the kind of like bigger ones. And then there's also like this aspect of discovery and like a new data science is coming on. They just want to be able to pick features that are already existing and not have to re-engineer everything from scratch. Ideally, you just say, okay, I've got a customer-driven or product-driven you know, driver driven use case. Can I just get all the driver features and try to model and see what happens? Just, that's what kind of experience you want to have and not say, okay, you need to, to create all your features from scratch using some kind of upstream business intelligence or data warehouse. And so Feast was initiated based on this kind of broad set of problems and in some sense is a little bit too broad, but I, I feel at the same time it's strategically positioned or it's the feature stores are positioned in such a way that it's one of the few places that you can solve all of those, those problems. When we started developing it though, so we, it was an initiative between Google Cloud and Gojek and their investors in us and so this is a very natural partnership there. They were also working with us on another project that was with another team actually based around transformations. And so for us, it, and even from their perspective, it was a very natural split not to have the transformations a core part of the feature store and have that be a separate scope. And this turned out to be a very important decision and also very controversial in Feast because a lot of people come to us and they're data scientists and they say, why don't you? Why don't you have transformations? Why don't? You, isn't that a core problem that you're trying to solve? And we we agree that it's a very big problem. It is one of the number one problems. Like this, one of the first number one or number two problems. Like I guess data quality is the second biggest problem. But there are so many initiatives and so many tools trying to solve that. We just feel like that is a something that we can decouple from the core value problem of the feature store. So I can drive, dive into a project and how it evolved and those kinds of things. But I'd say those are the big problems we're trying to solve. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to start at the beginning of that project, where did the idea come from? Did someone just have a eureka moment that, oh, wow, if we do this, no, then... I, I, it's to some degree a envy of what Uber had, right? It was like, Uber <laughs> had this Michelangelo platform, and why can Uber have this, but we can't? And they had promoted and published a lot of interesting things that really resonated with us. And it seemed like they had solved a lot of those problems and they, in fact, did. Obviously, there are still problems there and there always will be, but it's second order problems. And at the time, we had solved a lot of our, we realized that a lot of our problems were just core data engineering problems and not really data science related. And we were getting close to the point of solving those. So we had the data warehouse being built. We had the streaming architecture being relatively stable. And then we were starting to realize like this, now it's time to make sure that our AML infrastructure was actually converging on something closer to a Michelangelo or at least something that had resembled the, the core value props. So it was really inspired by a lot of the work that they had done and a lot of the work that larger technology companies in the US had done. And we knew that we had the resources to do that. So we had a mandate that basically you could build out a team as big as you want as long as you can solve this problem unconstrained in a, lot, a way that a lot of companies are constrained by headcount and manpower at the time which is unique in asia and i guess it's a product of the kind of vc funding model that is a little bit wild in ride hailing does it answer your question yeah yeah and where did when you had were you looking at uber's michelangelo solution where did you start for to implement that feature store and what were some of the biggest things that you learned as you kept on iterating over it? Yeah, so we built, yeah, so we were originally inspired by the you know blog posts and we took a lot of those like baseline design decisions from there. We started the project with Google. We started it primarily around some core use cases that we had. So we had a lot of fraud detection systems at the time, and we had a lot of, obviously, the ride-hailing stuff like matchmaking and the pricing and voucher incentives. 
But I'd say we took two or three of those use cases, the fraud and the matchmaking one and the pricing one, and we just said, can we develop a system that cuts across all of these, that solves the kind of reuse, discoverability, consistency problems that they have? At the start, we also considered transformations, but then working with those teams, like at Google, we decided to carve that off. So that was one of the aha moments for us was like realizing that transformation is something that we didn't want to put inside of the feature store. Even though you can publish the metadata of those transformations to the feature store and surface it through the feature store, it's not something we want to have as part of it. So that was one of the things that we iterated on. We built out an MVP, we shipped it, and we tr you applied it to some of our use cases. And the, the 0.1 release, in fact, was very, and in a lot of ways, it's, it had a data model that was flawed. It was, it was not grouping it didn't have something called feature groups or feature views or feature sets whatever you call it which is an ingestion level grouping of features as they come into the feature store if you don't have that and you're storing a kind of key value for each value of a feature then you have a very narrow kind of data model and that was one of our biggest problems at the start was its performance so our fraud detection system needed to do it was like 10,000 requests a second or something insane because every driver location update when you have hundreds of thousands of drivers and every couple of seconds one of them i think it's every 10 seconds a updated event look location comes in you want to like update features and the scale was very high there and um, our data model didn't really work well so that's something we figured out as well and we iterated our apis and stuff like adding feature groups we moved towards a decentralized model where we would have a central ingestion system for the feature store and we would decentralize the serving. And this was a good example of organized organizational incentives, moving kind of technical design. So, yeah, I think it's just in, by nature in the organization, we had a very democratic, like team-centric decision-making. And so for a team to adopt a feature store, they wouldn't necessarily depend on a centralized team. And But if you can tell them, you get your own online store, and it's only you that's going to use it and we'll stream data into it and you get all the cool stuff that FeatureStore provides. So that was one thing that we, you know, if you look back on it, the decision to not have transformations and the decision to decentralize online serving were both driven by not broader industry demand, but by internal constraints. And some of those, like the decentralized serving, we've since rolled back because we don't think that's something that the broader industry wants. But I'd say those were like the two big ones that I, can quickly recall. But over time, we had second order problems. So we'd built the system, we'd built it as engineers. So you started with like the production environment, worked backwards. And there's two areas there that were weak and that we were still working on today. One was the data science experience. So if you're like building an engineering system, it's, you need, it's hard to deploy and manage, of course, because it's a large system, but it's also as a data scientist, you don't necessarily want to work with an API and like a client server. You want to, you know, have everything local in your notebook and kind of iterate there. And if something goes wrong in the client server model, you want good logs and good feedback and you want to be able to iterate quickly. But the system was at the time, it had long iteration cycles and it would not be very responsive. So that's something that we really focused on simplifying and making easier and making more pleasant for data scientists to use. One of the big lessons I learned from building Feast was that you, you can start with a large scale production system and iterate it and evolve it towards what data scientists want to include in their workflows. But you can it's very hard to scale that down to a single Python library. But you can start with like a library or a binary and scale that up to a production system, depending on language choices, language choices, and some other aspects. But I think 
when you're working with two groups of users, so you have engineers on one side and you have data scientists on the other side, focusing on just one can blind your design decision for the product. And so that's something we're really focused on right now is how can we make Feast really a pleasure to use as a, for a data scientist and not just use, but actually deploy. So the current iteration is still a little bit like it requires an investment in engineering, but we hope that in the future, very soon, actually, we're going to release some improvements that make it very easy to use as a data scientist. So that that experience with data scientists was one thing that we discovered was like a problem, but we still haven't figured, fully solved yet. And the second one was like the importance of ensuring data quality. Like it, the feature store essentially is the bridge between models and data. Like it's the view through which a model sees data in your organization, an ML model. And if you are in that critical path for the model, if you feed it bad data, it'll, you know, have bad predictions. And so you are, you know, positioned in such a place that it's up to the feature store to make sure that the right data is being served. So what we are working on is providing me a means for data scientists to know that there's an upstream breakage in a, like a table or extreme, prevent that from cascading down. But if it does cascade down, at least surface that to the data scientists through alerts or dashboards or something. And I think most importantly, provide the data scientists a way that they can use their domain expertise in the field, their understanding of the features, their understanding of the kind of entities like the customers and the drivers, the real world to inform a lot of the kind of you know behavior that you know, should be there. So we allow them to set the constraints on the data. We allow them to set the alerts. And they're publishing the feature constraints and we give them a guided way into do, doing that. But ultimately it's impossible for a platform team to come to say, this is the amount of trips a driver should make. Or if he does a thousand, he's fraudulent. Well, I don't know what the right number is, but the person that is an expert in drivers does know that. And they have data backing that up. So it was, uh, you know, all, Pretty much what our job scope was like, excluding us from day-to-day -day work, like automating ourselves out of existence was in effect what we were trying to do. And uh, yeah, so that's a roundabout way of answering your question, but I hope that gave you an idea of what we were focused on. Yeah, definitely. And there's so many things that I want to dig into there, but starting at the end with the data quality was, I'm guessing that there was existing monitoring solution that was where you could just hook up or integrate feasts where you're just piping data from feast into those i don't know maybe like a ks test to figure out if the data has drifted between training and serving or how did that kind of work how did the monitoring solution get integrated yeah that's a good question so that was it was funny enough that the we had a great process of creating rfc's and so actually one of the data designs these are the seven types of validations that we want to do can we just start with one of them and include that in feast and then we're going to start becoming more confident in the system because obviously you have to start somewhere and they helped us with that so there's all these different places that you can expose data you can expose it in the incoming stream you can expose it in the stores at rest like the online store and the offline store you can expose it in when you're running the job that fetches the data from the upstream system and pushes it into the stream you can validate it at that point you can validate training data sets that are being created and you can validate data that's being read out of the online store prior to being served to a model. So there's all these hooks, essentially, places where data can be emitted out of the system. You can think of them as like beacons or producers of, of events. And the place that we started originally was just the incoming stream. So data coming into the online store is obviously the thing that is 
the the most critical because it is the easiest to destabilize the system because you can react on like longer time frames with batch data, but you can't react within seconds if something catastrophic happens in the stream. So we would stream out. Uh, actually, what we did is we we basically made Prometheus into an online store. So all the data that's written into our offline, sorry, our key value online store, Redis, was also being pushed into Prometheus. So our incoming streams would write out those feature values into Prometheus through StatsD. And based on that information, we could trend and validate and add all kinds of steps to allow data scientists to alert and react on the data. And we would group it in such a way that it is literally the tables that they had set up. It's literally the feature tables and the feature views that they had set up already. Then as like a second order effect, we also gave them a way to um, return statistics on data using TFDV. So we would produce TFDV statistics based on training runs or batch data sets, not data sets, but you'd have a feature table essentially in a database in like BigQuery that contains all of your feature values over like many days. And we could give them a way to produce a TFDV compliant protobuf. And you could use that in your Jupyter notebook or somewhere else and apply your own kind of validation on top of that. So in a lot of ways, we are we see the feature store as like an abstraction layer more than it is a like a database. It's not it's something that ties together a lot of technologies in an opinionated way. And our core competency is not replacing general great expectations or the TFDV. It's not to replace Prometheus. It's not to become a key value store or BigQuery. It's like an opinionated kind of composition of those systems towards becoming a, a unified view that a data that a model needs in an organization. And so, yeah, so the chaos tests are not something that we implement on day one. We just expose the data because the feature store is the thing that has the data to the data scientists in the right places. And what our vision is over time is that maybe we can make that integration a little bit more seamless. Like we can maybe make the interplay between the TFDVs and the GEs and some of these tools a little bit you know, easier. Give them helper methods. We can kind of look at the reposit their, their expectations and validation tools that they'd set up elsewhere in, in the repos and just apply that to our features and data. So there's all these quality of life improvements that we wanted to make, but the core thing was knowing what's the quality of data being served to models online from the online store and knowing the quality of data being streamed into the online store and then being able to react on that and giving the data scientists a way to layer on their domain knowledge to prevent failures there. But I'd say a lot of teams want this utopian like auto drift detection, super automated autopilot quality monitoring thing. But I'm not sure if they know what they want. For 80% of the problems, it's as simple as having thresholds with some tolerances and maybe some adaptability there for seasonal effects. And that gives you gets you a lot of the way. Most teams don't even have that. And the drift detection and distribution detection and all that stuff is higher order problems that even for us took a while to get to some kind of like baseline solution. And just one final point there is one of the biggest problems that we had, not we, but the data scientists is that once you have all this information about quality, you don't always have an action that you can take. Sometimes things just go totally crazy and you don't know why. And you cannot resolve that because everything looks good. Like you see a value just like doubling or having some kind of effect and you go to the upstream transformation, it looks okay. Everything is running or everything's green. <laughs> and you just wonder like, why are there half the amount of trips being taken today in the city? 
maybe it's like Ramadan or it's Chinese New Year or something, and you you just don't know that there's some effect that is just you know oblivious to you. You're oblivious to that, and the actionability is the thing that I think is the hardest part, and it's something that is largely unsolved. If somebody can figure out how to convert alerts into actions, then that's going to be a, a billion dollar company. Yeah, that is a really interesting problem. We've definitely had situations where we're looking at uh, monitoring the features individually. And like you said, something just goes haywire, but then you have a delay on what the accuracy ends up being. And it's like fine to sometimes even better. And you're not yet yeah, exactly not quite sure what to do there. Or even really, I'm not sure how you, one would even think about the problem of enforce, of having actionability in that. But uh, so problem out there for someone listening to solve. And for something else that you mentioned with gaps in Feast right now, and some things that you learned was the data science, data scientists' experience with being able to use it. And in one of the blog posts that I read, the State of Feast, you said that the vision for it is to become a lightweight, modular. What would that look like for someone who is on a data science team and has realized that they want to be able to use something like this? but isn't necessarily in a position to have the entire organization adopt it, what would that kind of look like for them to be using Feast? Yeah, I think it's mostly about a feature store or any kind of software product has some value that it has to the user and it has some kind of overhead, right? You can't deploy infinite amount of technologies and have infinite value. So you have to decide how many things you can deploy meaningfully and within a day and maintain towards your use case and the problem you're trying to solve. For us, I think if you talk about engineers, platform teams, to them, there's a clear value in operating a feature store. There's a clear value in not having to make these decisions again. And you often have enough engineers to do that. If you are a data scientist or a data engineer, maybe just two or three folks trying to solve some problem, the current feature store experience with Feast is overwhelmingly hard. I wouldn't say it's Okay, it's not overwhelmingly hard. It's pretty easy. You can just Docker compose and you can get it up and running. But the value to to that compared to what you're getting or what you need to do is not you know commensurate. It's you can probably deploy a Redis and you can probably ship your own data and then you can probably just be extremely conscious about ensuring consistency. And we want to make that not to be the case. We want to make sure that deployment and management of the feature store is so easy and so stable and so seamless that. It's like just an easy one-click experience. And we can drive out the value access or we can drive down the kind of deployment overhead access. What we're trying to do right now is just fit in very nicely with the existing workflows that data scientists have and then solve this one problem that they have, like shipping data into production and like an operationalizing the data safely and ensuring that consistent view of data between training and serving. Just make sure that we can nail that problem really well and then focus heavily on the like experience of like how do you make this super easy for them to get started with which components can we just rip out and throw away or simplify even if it comes at the cost of some functionality and our hope is that feast will become a tool that is very hard to say no for because it has so much value compared to how much it costs to to run and the metric that we'll use to look at that is like the ratio of platform teams versus solution quote-unquote teams that run feast like if a data scientist and a data engineer two folks can just deploy this and solve a business problem that's a win for us if a platform team deploys it yes sure that's a win but it's not 
we've not succeeded in our mission of making it easier for teams to get started. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So the kind of composability is big. We hear from a lot of people like, I have da- database X, Y, and Z. Why can't we use that? You know, And you don't want to create data islands. You want them to just reuse infrastructure that already exists. And this goes to the same thing. You don't want to force people to do more work. And if you look at some of our competitors, they all don't have that same vision. They Some of them build their own customized databases and require their own proprietary, even if it's open source, file systems. So I don't know who they're targeting, but they must be targeting groups of people that we've never spoken to. So yeah, that's where we're focusing right now. And the Python experience is one that we are you know, increasingly think is natural for data scientists and something that Tekton has done very well and to a lot of success. But there's a lot of development happening right now towards this end. And I think in about a month or two's time, we're going to have a pretty big announcement of you know, new functionality that we're going to ship. And I'm hoping that with for your listeners, we can ship, give you a preview of that maybe even sooner. But we can talk about that a little bit later. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. And so speaking of the different ways that you can uh, be reading in data. What inputs are supported now? I know that there's three di- there's three different types of data inputs. You have batch streaming and then the ones in real time. But what kind of integrations are available out of the box? What are can we look for in the roadmap in the near future? Yeah, so I think right now we've with P0.7, we were GCP only. I joined Tecton and we said, let's try and open this up to more teams. And so we moved out Apache Beam. We moved towards Apache Spark. And we refactored Feast so that it supports Amazon. You can go ahead and deploy Feast on Amazon. You can deploy it and integrate it with Kinesis. You can use S3 as a data source. So right now you can use like Parquet or BigQuery as your data sources. We recently also added support for Azure. Right now your only online store option is Redis. We don't we don't have a strong use case yet for many online other online stores. I think folks have asked for Cassandra, folks have asked for Bigtable, folks have asked for Dynamo. We can see us adding those, but right now we're just trying to make the experience of using the software very easy first. And we want to break out interfaces for teams to extend so that they can add those stores themselves. We want to open this up to a community and not necessarily be on the critical path for a lot of the storage options. So yeah, basically, so it's GCS, S3, Azure Blob Storage, BigQuery is your data sources for batch, Kinesis or Kafka for streams, Redis for an online store. And I think that's going to be the status quo for at least another two or three months. Yeah, that certainly covers probably the vast majority of a lot of people's usage of it. And so from the data scientist's point of view, if how what does it look like for, let's say that Feast has already stood up, and uh, they're able to use it. What does it look like for them to iterate on features and iterate on models when they are experimenting for, say, a new use case? Would you imagine that they iterate on the features first, put those, get those set into inputs to Feast, and then iterate on the model? Or how do you how have you seen people do this? Yeah, so that's an experience that we think is a little bit weak right now, but we think it can improve over time. And so right now, the most common pattern is, I mean, the, the, by nature, Feast doesn't do transformations. And so you've got some kind of batch system, DBT, or you've got some stream processing system that you do your transformations in, and then you iterate on all of your transformations. You get to a point where you're pretty happy with these transformations. But this could also just be like pandas in a notebook or something. When you get to that point, you're relatively happy with your model. There's a productionization step where you say, these are my data sources, and you register those data sources with Feast, and then you can like Feast will ingest or load in those data sources. You also have the option to add a step at the back of a 
you know, airflow pipeline or an ETL pipeline that ingests that into fees. There's especially a three-step process. One is registering the tables, like the featured tables that you want to consume eventually and loading data in or registering sources that we load data from. Step two is training a model. So you would then send a query to Feast. It's an API call. Yeah, well, actually it's an SDK call and we will build a training data set for you and return that to you and then you can train your model. And then finally in production, you'd hit the Feast API to retrieve online feature values. So the iteration cycle is normally develop in a notebook, disconnect from Feast until you're happy. Then you hook up your data source, your data transformations to Feast so that you're publishing to Feast as well. Then you've got your training and serving notebook that is typically separate from your data creation notebook or pipelines that consume and train and push to production and then serve. And then you can like iterate on those. And so the process then to add something is like you, you add something to your data. Like if you add a feature, you go to your uh, ETL pipeline or your ELT pipeline, add a column there that'll cascade down into the feature store. And then you can add that to your training run and then you can add that to your serving as well. Technically, if you train a model with Feast, you'll just have a model binary and then you'll have a list of features that you use to query for training and that gets shipped with the binary. And so the model serving environment doesn't actually know by itself what features, it's not hard coded to features. It just picks up the binary and it's got like an attached list of features to it. And so it just says, oh, okay, I'll just, this, I guess this model needs these features and I'll just request it from Feast. And so you, your production environment is standardized. It doesn't really change. Interesting. So when you're training, when you're in that notebook and you have your features set up at Feast and you are doing that training run, uh, pulling the features directly, is it just a some standardized like YAML file or something that lists those features that you package up in like a zip when you upload your model? Yeah, it's, you can have like a JSON list or just like a key value list or... Yeah, it's it's not. It, there's no standard to that. We thought about mm. standardizing it, and then we're like, "Wait, this is just a list. It's just literally just the names <laughs> of the features. There's you know <laughs> nothing to standardize on." Regardless, that's a really useful feature. We're def interesting. And how would you imagine that like DAGs of models would be handled? I know increasingly at my work where we have like pipelines of where your feature is that's being created is being created by another model and that is upstream from or downstream from another model. Would you be storing the intermediate results in those feature stores? I'm thinking specifically of embeddings that are commonly used across different projects. Oh, that's a good question. We have, I think the model that we saw the most was, so Gojek went towards a stream first architecture. And for a lot of the models that we deployed, so we had our model serving system that I said earlier was Merlin. And so when a data scientist deploys a model, it'll just be an API. But then we had another service called Excalibur that can take a model that's deployed on Merlin and then just basically streamify it. So when an event happens on a stream, it sends an API request to Merlin, gets a response, which is the prediction, and then publishes it back to the stream. And so basically how we solved it at Gojek was make sure that any predictions just go back to the stream and make sure that there is a kind of schema for that data that's being logged out. And then there's no difference between raw data, transform data, and predictions. It's all just the same thing. And ultimately, a model is basically a transformation on some incoming data. So that's how we looked at it. Obviously, you need to 
models can behave differently and they have a temporal aspect to them if you're deploying new ones and changing them. So you need to track that. And there's some complexity there, but for the most part, we didn't look at models in a different way. We just pushed their results back to either batch sources or we pushed it back to the stream and then we sunk it back into the feature store. So we made new features from new from models. And so it was a very recursive experience for most users. And that just really worked well. And it just came naturally, and we didn't really think too much about intentionally doing that. It just worked. It was the path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. Does it answer your question? I hope it does. Yeah, it does. It does. I'm thinking of some exceptions that, we're, that we specifically have, but I think they're probably two unique situations to, to get into. But if you were a like an ML startup, and we already touched on this a little bit before, but uh, when you were, went to explain Gojek's entire ML platform. If you were starting completely from scratch, where would the feature store fall in terms of priorities to start using? I think it depends on the type of feature store that you have. I'd say the number one problem you want to solve is your core data infrastructure. So you want to have, and that's where you're going to spend 90% of your time if you don't have that solved. I think we spent a lot of time at the start with Gojek on building Airflow pipelines, interacting with directly with slave DBs and Postgres or MySQL horrible experience because the engineering teams were not ready for us over time we went towards dead lake which also sucked and then eventually we landed on bigquery which was heaven so i'd say utilize modern data technologies like bigquery or snowflake you know if you don't if you can't do that you can still use redshift or athena or some of these other kind of poor implementations but to set up a, a a, a strong foundation of data where you don't have to think too much about partitioning and organizing the data and encoding and all this stuff. There's something like BigQuery is great for that because you can just focus on transformations. Focus on getting your, your kind of streaming infrastructure up and focus on getting your kind of production systems to produce streams and have those streams you know, land in your in warehouse. And you know, tools like services like Fivetran also make this a lot easier. And then when you have that, then you can really start like experimenting with feature stores. Probably you can build an MVP without a feature store. And in fact, in a lot of cases, I just recommend to data scientists, do whatever you have to do to get into production first. You can lie, cheat and steal just to get into production because your biggest challenge is justifying the business impact. That's something, there's an existential risk for most data science projects that including a feature store is just going to make things more risky for you. It's, you know, it's going to push out your timeline. The I'd, I'd say one of the big risks is like there's an engineering team that you need to integrate with and they don't have time to do that. So you want to maximize the amount of time that they, or you want to decrease the amount of time that it takes you to get to a point where you can say, here's my API, when can I expect you to integrate? And then you can email them every day and ask them, when are we integrating? And then you can figure out like, how can I make my model more better and more stable and less bad? So I'd say that's not exactly the kind of path we took because we built the platform and then we built all these integrations. But it also depends on your organization, right? If you're just like five to 10 people and you're all sitting next to each other, you don't have this problem. If you're dealing with, we had a thousand engineers at Gojek, so there's many teams. And so uh, yeah, there's a lot of, you can easily have your deadlines pushed out if you're a data scientist, uh, if you're dependent on another team. So I'd say get the, the feature store can be a kind of like, optimization experience if it's your first time deploying the feature store and if you have it you should probably use it from the start mm -hmm. yeah it makes a lot of sense with mentioning how people you want to maximize the amount of time that people are getting value out of it so that they don't just kill it entirely so that definitely makes a lot of sense and i saw recently that feast has 
integrated with some of the data catalogs that are out there with Munson and uh, Data Hub. Can you talk a little bit about the value that those sorts of integrations bring in general and the process of bringing them into Feast? Yeah, so that's actually you know, full credit to those teams. Like we did absolutely nothing. They did all the work. So Munson did everything and I take no credit for that. They, they're very driven. They're very productive and very efficient. So I think, as I said earlier, we're an abstraction primarily. We are not, we don't see the data discovery as this core value prop that we bring. We think it's something that we can enable and we would love for a tool like a Munson or a Data Hub to standardize that contract and interface. And in fact, these were discussions that we've been having for a long time with Kubeflow because Feast is a part of Kubeflow and the artifact tracking and the discovery and all that stuff is intertwined because our data can be artifacts, features can be artifacts, models can be artifacts, everything can be tracked and traced. But ultimately, a Munson and Data Hub, they're on a different kind of quest and we've we encourage these integrations the same with like ge and tfdv and kubeflow we'd much rather have clean interfaces between these um, kind of like best of breed tools and in the future we can slot any of these out like we can replace feast with another feature store if we decide that there's a better one to integrate the munson with or and we can swap out the munson for something else and i think the space is moving so quickly that we can't just swallow in a munson wholly and then make it a part of feast or the reverse either. So I think it's it's a great time to be in the space because there's so much going on throughout the life cycle and so many tools being developed. And what we've gotten to a point now where there's a lot of V1s of these tools and they're trying to like put the kind of interfaces together and like figuring out like where do things get broken if you try and stitch these together and where do the concepts map. It seems like the Munson, uh, Munson API is mapped relatively cleanly to Feast. And so that's something that we're very impressed by and happy with. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. And it's, I like how you mentioned that it's, it is a very exciting time to be watching how these tools progress, starting to adopt some of them. And how are some of these standards progressing in terms of that interconnectivity. I've seen a few, obviously like uh, the Linux and AI Data Foundation that you just joined. There's a few others where they're trying to have that like interoperability between all the tools and those. Just how have you seen those standards propagate and how are you in general viewing that problem? Yeah, that's actually, a, it's a big topic. We in general like to look at like more mature spaces. So the data spaces you know, thinks of itself as very mature, but it's really not if you compare it to like you know, traditional infrastructure or some of the other kind of like even database technologies. So we're taking inspiration from how they've done like open source, how they've set standards, how they've set specifications, or just like communication protocols and all those RFCs and things that have been released. And this, these are conversations that we've been having in the Kubeflow world. And David Aronchik has been a big proponent of having standards, but not like a capital S, but like a lowercase s or specifications, which I prefer to standards, where you you can agree between two products or more on like how you're going to interface, but it's to the end of solving a specific problem or a set of problems or use cases. It's not towards building all these like white paper, publishing white papers and setting standards and then patting yourself on the back and then you put that on your LinkedIn profile and then you call it a day. It's really about solving problems and right now it's just as simple as like a month in a feast integrate or a month you know feast and Kubeflow integrate and what does it look like how do we get the security story working how do we how do we reconcile the fact that there's teams that have their own unique internal requirements and we want to integrate we want them to be able to use feast and we want other teams to be able to 
get like a fully packaged feast deployed in their environment that has the Kubeflow and a bunch of other tools working together consistently. So it's organic right now. And I think there is an effort right now to release specifications for feast. And intentionally we're calling them specifications because they're not going to be set in stone, a standard Standards are not very set in stone, but a standard is a little bit more serious and formal, where a specification is a description more than anything of what you have, and that can evolve. So we want to describe to teams, like, these are the requirements from you, and these are the things that we will provide, and these are the things that we can guarantee, and these are the things that are, like, experimental and fuzzy. So an example of that is our online store will store data in this format using these kinds of notions and the structure of data and types. Maybe it'll be key value. Maybe we'll serialize like this. We'll have some guarantee that you can build your own online serving store and interact with that. Or you can have your own ETL pipeline right into that online store and it'll work with our online store. And that gives teams a lot of composability, means they can break the feature store apart and then adopt certain components. That's something that's really big for a lot of teams. And so like for online store, for offline store, for our online APIs, for our feature definitions, there's all specifications that we are thinking of releasing in the next month or two. And uh, even other large cloud vendors and uh, so other feature store startups have said to us, let's just standardize this and we can publicly agree that these are the API contracts because nobody thinks that there's going to be much innovation there. Everybody has like a different area that they want to innovate. And so they just want to commoditize the kind of boring parts so that customers and users say, everybody's standardizing this. It's pretty stable and mature. We're fine putting our production system on that, but it's really about what happens behind that. Like what component are you deploying? Are you deploying feature store ABC or are you deploying fees or whatever? And what value to get from that? The API contracts and the storage layer contracts are all stable. So that's kind of where we want to get to. And we're hoping to drive that with Fees and Tecton, hopefully pushing the creation of those uh, specifications. So yeah, that's a big effort that we're currently working on. Yeah, yeah that'll be really great when, uh, when it happens, when all these different things can agree on uh, these different contracts. It's like you said, it's ML is and data architecture in general are still pretty, very young systems. And we definitely have problems where our abstractions are way too leaky or just not well-specified enough. So it'll be definitely a welcome uh, addition. And you've thought a lot about the future of data of these tool stacks in general. And of course, we've already mentioned quite a few of them. However, I, I, don't, I do always find that people have, have no tools that I have never even heard of. So what are some of those other tools, uh, other parts of the stack that you think are doing things really well or in, in line with a lot of the values that you develop Feast with? So you mean adjacent tools or complementary tools? Yeah, adjacent tools. tools. Yeah. Adjacent complementary. Any... Yeah. yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, I need to stop saying that's a good question because you've just got good questions. I Those are the tools that we're already integrating with, I think, to some degree, or at least... If we're not directly integrating, they're easy to integrate. Great expectations is something that we really like to use. TFTV is something that we've used a lot in the past, and that's been something that's kind of useful for a lot of teams, but not something that we see a lot of movement or activity in. But we see a lot of like teams using Cortex. So there's a lot of activity on the model serving side. We personally have had a lot of positive experience with part of my team in Gojek building on top of KF serving and MLflow. So those have been really successful for us to do artifact tracking and deployment. And then upstream DBT, you can't not talk about DBT anymore. It's really gone like super viral right now. If you look at their Slack, it's 12,000 people or something. 
So I think the modern data stack is really coming to a head and you're seeing like this streaming into warehouse ELT style kind of foundation of data becoming very dominant with streams taking a bit of a backseat and data lakes taking a bit of a backseat and a lot of companies like Databricks that are positioning themselves in such a way that they're not completely out of the conversation. So it's almost, it's really about abstraction. It's really about experience of using a product. If you look at like using Spark versus using BigQuery, it's wildly different. And you, you can really save people a lot of time. So what we want to do is just integrate with those tools. And I think if you're looking at the modern data stack, DBT is core to that. The great expectations is really important there. And we see a lot of like model, model monitoring and model management tools becoming dominant. It's still, the jury's still out on which ones, but that's an exciting one to monitor. And then like, I think on the model serving side, it's really serving and cortex that look great for me right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And with all these tools, there's a spectrum of how open source they are versus being a managed service versus being on-prem or SaaS. And of course, you have a unique perspective on this because Feast was recently backed by uh, Tekton and you joined them as well. So how do you view the interaction and the interplay between these paid services and the ones that are open source? Yeah, it's, yeah, there are companies like Lyft and Uber and Gojek that'll fund development that becomes open source and to some degree make sure that it's successful. And there's a bit of a dice roll there in what kind of culture those companies have. You know, I've seen companies like IBM and Salesforce, even traditional companies actually invest in open source. And obviously major tech companies do that as well. But for the most part, you really don't have projects that are open source that are successful if you don't have developers that can sink in a lot of time into them, you can have a benevolent, you know, dictator for life style person that's just always sinking his own hours into it. But even the creditor of Redis was burnt out at some point where you know, you just don't don't have enough time to get to all of the things you want to add. So I see those as the kind of enterprise and commercial aspects of product development as core to open source right now. We haven't solved that problem yet. If one day, if you could stand up a company on GitHub and you can say less 10 developers, let's just do this full time and somehow get money. That'll be great. But right now it's still a reality that there has to be some kind of, you know, commercial benefit. And I think it doesn't, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. If you speak to a bank and they say, I need single sign-on and I've got all these GDPR and all these kind of regulations and I need multi-tenancy and this just, all this functionality that needs to be done and they're willing to pay for it. And there's smaller teams that, that can't. As like developers or innovators or creators of these tools, we need to address both groups. So the relationship between the commercial and the kind of free open source is very important. And with Tekton and Feast specifically, if I understand it, you said that in the Datastack podcast that the you expect the feature store specifically offerings to split where you do have one that is more for the enterprise and for entire platforms that are adopting these things versus the small ones meant for more of the individual teams who are standing up and want them to be lightweight and modular. So do you view Feast as that, just that latter one and then Tekton as the first one? Am I thinking about it correctly? Yeah, so we want to make sure that, so firstly, we're going to focus really on abstraction. Right now, the biggest problem we have is not even the kind of the ones that you listed, it's more when a person comes to a feature store, do they know what the feature store is meant to do and 
solve for them because there's so much going on in the space that it's super confusing. Even as a person working in feature stores, if I look at some of the other feature stores and what problems are these guys trying to solve? And the communication is very contradictory and you know inconsistent. So for us, it's about getting to a point where a person that is trying to solve a problem can look at our APIs and our abstractions and docs and say, ah, okay, now I get it. Now I know how, to, how I can solve my problem. And then secondly, the second order is, can we? Can I get started very quickly? And hopefully Feast is our way to do that. So Feast is really going to be something that we want to give to a large amount of data scientists and users and make it very easy to get started with, make it possible for them to get to prod with Feast without using Tecton and really make them like appreciate our kind of API and our abstraction. And then we want to have, want to have a consistent abstraction with Tecton. We want to you know make that a seamless move. If you want to say, roll it out for an enterprise, let's say you're in a bank and you're just one person, you can get started with Feast, start using it, maybe in your local notebook or even in a small production system. And then if you want to scale it out to, or, to an org and you want you know more enterprise features, you can start to use Tecton. Not to say that you can't do that at a small scale with Tecton, we're also going to make it possible for some teams that want more advanced functionality, let's say they want transformations or some of the kind of like multi-tenancy or like beautiful UI or advanced scheduling capabilities and high availability and all that stuff. If you want that out of the box, we're going to try and make that really easy for you as well. So some people will start with Tecton, but we want to make these something that kind of just broadens the reach and understanding of all the team, of all our users. And make sure that it clicks, make sure that the API really clicks and that they can map it to their kind of problems. Because I feel like right now, it still seems feature stores are optional for a lot of people. I mean, we think it should be a requirement, but it's really up to us to convince people of that. Yeah. And I think for a lot of organizations that are still developing their ML solutions that they just haven't, a lot of them don't know about the problems that they are going to have. I know that for where I work specifically, we've just run into a lot of those problems of between training and serving SKU, ones that you, you they look pretty hard to predict if you haven't gone through that full like end-to-end -end process before. So yeah, anything that, that you and your coworkers, other people in the feature source space are doing to promote these problems, let people know is uh, definitely saving people a lot of headaches. Yeah. And so we're getting to the end of our recording period. Is there anything else that I didn't ask about that you think you'd like to cover here? I think so. Yeah, we touched on it earlier. We're working on a kind of lighter weight design for Feast. We really want to get into people's hands. We have a newsletter that's also going to go out in about uh, a month or so that'll touch on this and then reach out to people and share some of our new designs. But we'd love to speak to people before then. We want to bounce ideas with teams, specifically teams that are running BigQuery, DPT, they're on cloud. We want to speak to teams that have problems productionizing features. Maybe they want to take their offline features and bring it online or their streams and bring it online and help them not just productionize models, but help them figure out how they can productionize their data. So if any of your team, any of your listeners would like to speak to us, we're going to bounce ideas with a lot of teams and a lot of customers and a lot of like users and practitioners. Please reach out to me. I'm on Kubeflow Slack. I'm on MLOps community. You can also reach me on LinkedIn. And if you just sign up for that newsletter, we're going to send out our new design pretty soon, hopefully in about a month or so. And love to get some feedback on that, uh, get some eyes on that. Awesome. I will definitely put in the links to the GitHub, links to the website where people can sign up to get that news when it comes out. Once again, Willem, thank you so much for joining me. This was a really fascinating conversation. Cool. That was a pleasure. Thanks, Charlie. 
you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com, to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Thank you.